Good morning. Let me try that again. Good morning. I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning of the service. Maybe you missed that. If you're new here or visiting, especially, we want you to feel welcome. We hope you'll stick around after the service and have some coffee and we can get to know you a little bit. That would be great. My name is Alex. I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright. And for the last three weeks, we have been working our way through a series on Christian leadership. And as we've done that, we recognize, first of all, that all of us are called to be leaders. This isn't a topic that's reserved for a particular class of people and the rest of us can kind of doze off. There are no exceptions to us being called as Christians. And so we've looked at Elijah, who went from this great success to a great failure and was full of self-pity, but he heard the voice of God in a gentle whisper asking him, What are you doing? Seems like a great question. Then we looked at Nehemiah, whom God called to lead his people in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And we saw how under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra and the priests, scripture became the center of the life of those people in that city. And then last week we looked at Moses, who was challenged by his father-in-law, Jethro, to not lead alone but to share his calling, to develop leaders, other leaders. The one theme we've heard over and over each week has been that leaders listen to God. And so during these three weeks, we've seen that they do that, first of all, by hearing from God in solitude. That's how we started. Secondly, by hearing from God in scripture. And then last week we saw how Moses heard from God through the wisdom of God's people, through this advice, this rebuke even from his father-in-law, Jethro. And today we're going to wrap up this series by looking at the leadership of Jesus, the ultimate leadership that we need and the hope that Christ offers to every leader, especially to every failed leader. And as we're going to consider, that really is every one of us. So let's pray before we open our Bibles. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you hover over us as your church? Would you shape us individually and together more and more into the likeness of your son, Jesus? Would you open up the heavens today and show us who you are so that we can see the presence of Christ in our lives? Give us practical wisdom today for whatever we're facing from your word, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're reading from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 14. And this is one of those passages where there's lots of footnotes. I don't think they will show up on the screen, but if you've got your own Bible, you're at an advantage, aren't you? Because you can check out the footnotes. I don't know if you love to do that. I do. Anyway... Let's read it, shall we? Luke 4, 1 to 14. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. 
and said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. This is the word of the Lord. So I had lunch with some friends this week. It's actually right at the back of the room there. We ate butter chicken. It was pretty mild butter chicken. So I was really glad someone brought this great masala hot sauce. I don't know about you, but I like things spicy. Now, psychologists at Yale University did a study about this. Why people like to eat hot food. Because animals don't, right? No animals put Tabasco sauce on their dinner. And these psychologists concluded that we enjoy spicy food partly because it's a challenge for us. It's like the culinary equivalent of extreme sports. It's a test. And over this lunch that I shared with some friends, one person shared how he and his brother take turns eating a single tortilla chip called the Reaper chip. I don't know if any of you have heard of this. It's a chip made with the Carolina Reaper pepper, which is the spiciest pepper in the universe. And they do this for fun. They do this to see who will give up first. How demented is that? (laughs) Sounds like a great men's ministry event. (laughs) So there are some tests that we choose to take, and there are others that we have to take. Over the past couple of weeks, my kids have had their high school exams. And I can tell you, there were a few days in there when they were not in a good mood at all. Some tests are really hard, and we'd rather avoid them. Here in Luke 4, Jesus is tested by the devil. It's not fun in any way, but he does it willingly. We read in the first verse of chapter 4, that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit led him into the wilderness. He's just come from his baptism where the Holy Spirit descended on him and God said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now the baptism of Jesus was this moment of huge affirmation in his life. What's going to happen next? Maybe a really great job offer, a reward of some kind? No, instead, for 40 days, he's alone, he eats nothing, and he's oppressed by evil forces. Our culture teaches us that our lives should be easy and comfortable. That's the way they should be. And the church also sometimes falls prey to this kind of thinking, and we call it the prosperity gospel. Jesus says something quite different. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. 
That's what you should expect. But he also says, take heart. He says, I have overcome the world and the devil too. As we reflect on this reading this morning, we're going to see, first of all, the reality of evil. Secondly, the significance of temptation. It's not maybe what we thought it was. And third, the hope of the gospel. People are fascinated by the devil, right? The devil shows up. Demons, evil spirits show up in all kinds of books, movies, and TV shows. I remember starting to get into music when I was a kid. Music from the 60s especially, starting to enjoy rock music. And someone gave me an album by the Rolling Stones. It was so good, I was loving it, until I came to a song called Sympathy for the Devil. And that seemed really bad, like something I probably shouldn't listen to. I was well-behaved at that point in my childhood. And years later, when I revisited that song, I realized that it actually takes the devil seriously. At the time, when the Rolling Stones released that song, they were accused of all kinds of things, of being devil worshippers and so on. But the song recognizes the reality of the devil and how his schemes, through his schemes, he tries to get us to take his side, to sympathize with him. And it traces the work of the devil throughout history even. We find him in the Russian Revolution. We find him as a Nazi general in World War II. We find him inspiring the assassination of JFK. In in the song, there's a refrain that goes like this. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guessed my name. But what's puzzling you is the nature of my game. And I think there's truth to that. The devil plays games with us, and he's puzzling. He's sneaky. We can't figure him out or see him coming. But in the West, as modern secular people, we don't believe in the devil. C.S. Lewis talks about this better than anyone I know in his book, The Screwtape Letters. And if you haven't read it at some point, I would encourage you to pick it up. In the preface to that book, he says this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Scripture takes the devil seriously, and so should we as followers of Christ. There is evil in the world, and we are called to fight it. But first, we're called to focus our attention on Jesus. Now, some Christians blame the devil for too much. They do take this excessive and unhealthy interest in him. We are responsible for our actions. The devil does not make us do it. He can only tempt and lie. We ourselves are the ones who choose to turn away from God. But Jesus leads us to resist that temptation. So let's look at these three temptations. The first one comes as Jesus nears the end of his fast. After 40 days, it says that he's hungry so he can eat again. And the devil comes up to him and says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? You're hungry after all. Now, What would be so wrong about that? Well, for one thing, it would have been the first and only time that Jesus used his miraculous powers for himself to meet his own needs. 
Jesus, throughout the Gospels, only uses his power for others. Now, forget this example, this situation with the bread. Imagine how this could have played out. Imagine if Jesus had used those miraculous powers to be really strategic about getting his message out. Jesus could have flown to Rome and written John 3.16 in the sky over the Colosseum, just like at the Super Bowl, right? He could have got his message out. He could have descended from on high into the Colosseum. He could have thrown fireballs at the lions. He could have destroyed the gladiators. He could have taken the throne. Caesar would have had to bow down to him. That would have left quite an impression, I think. What we see here is the devil inviting Jesus to use his power as a normal person would for his own advantage, to glorify himself. The real temptation was to stop trusting in God's provision. And when we fall prey to that temptation, we eat and we are satisfied, we build houses, we settle down, and we risk growing proud and forgetting about God. Let's look at the second temptation now. The devil offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. But wasn't Jesus supposed to rule over those kingdoms? Wasn't that his mission, why he came? Yes, but his mission was to get that rule through dying on the cross. And what the devil is saying here is that he can get all of that for Jesus without Jesus having to die on the cross, that he could ship it to him directly. And so Jesus again quotes from scripture, from Deuteronomy again, and resists the temptation. In the third temptation, the devil takes Jesus to the top of the temple in Jerusalem and says, throw yourself down. Now it's the devil quoting scripture, and he pulls some verses out of Psalm 91 out of context to show that God will have to send his angels to save Jesus. Now this might not sound too tempting for us, but for Jesus to have appeared at the temple like that would have fulfilled prophecy, and all the Jewish leaders would have had to recognize him as the Messiah. It would have bypassed a whole lot of misery and fast-forwarded to a happy, triumphant ending. The crowd would certainly have welcomed Jesus and accepted him. But again, Jesus came for a different reason. He came to empty himself of his glory. And when Satan says, look, you don't really need to lose your glory, Jesus does not fall for it. So what's really going on here? To understand the significance of these temptations, you have to see that there are two competing visions of reality at work here. Satan's way, on the one hand, is based on this principle. Your life poured out for me. The way of Jesus is the opposite. Jesus says, my life poured out for you. In Satan's kingdom, you get power and you use it to meet your needs. Maybe you don't do that too obviously, but you definitely do it. In the kingdom of Jesus, it's my life poured out for you. Jesus uses power for the sake of others and he calls us to do likewise. This is at the very core of Christian identity and of Christian leadership also. I love the way Andy Crouch puts it. Allison used this quotation last week. Crouch says, Power is not given to benefit those who hold it. 
It is given for the flourishing of individuals, peoples, and the cosmos, the universe itself. Power is not the opposite of servanthood. Rather, servanthood, ensuring the flourishing of others, is the very purpose of power. There's a line that goes down the center of every choice, down the center of every human heart. And these two kingdoms, the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of the devil, are competing, and they're saying, vote for me. And when you go one way or the other, you take a step towards becoming, in your character, like the leader of either one of those kingdoms. You can become more like Christ, or you can become more like the devil. Here's an example of that. You can walk into a room full of people. You might do this after the service over coffee. And you can look around and the wheels can immediately start turning. And you can think to yourself, how can I get what I want in this situation? How can I have an enjoyable conversation? How can I be comfortable? How can I advance my own interests? Now, in some lines of work, people are even trained to do this. This is the way of the world. You can walk into a room like that with an attitude that takes you in one direction or the other. You can look for your own needs to be met or you can look to serve. You can ask, what are the needs of others here that I could meet? And how can I give rather than take in this situation? I encourage you to practice this today, right after the service. Now, obviously... It's not wrong to go and talk to your friends. It's not wrong to leave immediately if you have somewhere to be. Check with me first, of course, as always, but uh, that was a joke. If you're visiting, that was a joke. We don't do that. But right after the service today, you could put this into practice. Are you willing to talk to someone who maybe you've been avoiding? Are you willing to reach out to someone who's new? Last Sunday, we had some visitors, and I was really proud of you guys. Court, right? We gave them an incredibly warm welcome, and that's only because some people were prepared to step out beyond their comfort zone. These little choices make the difference. You might have noticed that the first temptation here is pretty mundane. It's a little choice, an everyday choice. It's about bread, something you have to figure out every day, what you're going to eat. The second choice is a major choice. It's about taking up the kingdoms of the world. Little choices lead to big choices. Acting like Satan or acting like Jesus puts a mark on your character. Every single action is a step going one way or the other. But there's hope. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus is the central character in this story, and Jesus has overcome the devil. Jesus is the key to prevailing when we're tested. You'll be able to do it, first of all, if you see Jesus as your example. Notice that the devil led Jesus up to a high place. But we know there's no place that's literally high enough to see all the kingdoms of the world. And so what this is telling us is that Jesus gets a vision of glory from the devil. That Satan was trying to captivate him with the beauty and the glory and the authority of all the kingdoms of the world. 
Satan tempts Jesus to want them, to want that beautiful, glorious thing with or without God. You know how the devil works in your life? It's not about going to church. It's not about obeying the thou shalt nots. You know, don't cheat. Don't lie. Don't steal. No, you have to look beneath the rules to understand how the devil works. You have to go deeper because the devil is always going deeper. He always takes a good thing in your life and he wants to capture your imagination with it so that it becomes an ultimate thing for you, so that you want it more than you want God, so that it becomes your identity, your very happiness. If any good thing in your life, your family, your work, your wealth, a political cause, a religious cause, your success, a relationship, anything, if anything becomes more important to you than God, that good thing will turn into a demonic force that will control you and enslave you. The devil creates idols. And Jesus deals with him by quoting the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, he says. So we see Jesus here responding with scripture. But Jesus doesn't say, give me a Bible. It's not just that Jesus has scripture memorized, but even more, it's that Jesus knows the Bible so well, he has absorbed it so fully that he knows the right part to bring up by his nature. If you want the best example of this, it's Jesus at the cross. He is in the most excruciating pain, and when you're in that kind of pain, what's real about you comes out, doesn't it? And from the cross, as he's dying, he quotes Psalm 31. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason Satan could not get an inch into Jesus with these temptations is because Jesus was so soaked in the truth and the beauty of God. But that's not enough. We see Jesus here as an example of resisting temptation, but if Jesus is just your example, you are left having to pull this off by yourself. And you can never do that. Here's the truth about you, and here's the truth about every leader who ever lived. You have been tested, and you have failed. Now, some leaders hide this, in some cases, it comes out dramatically. But all of us are in this same boat. You have lied. You have been selfish. You have been angry and bitter. We all have. Carolyn prayed this in the confessional prayer during the first worship set. She said, let's be honest, she said as part of her prayer. And we do that, we practice that discipline when we gather for worship on Sunday mornings. We come to worship out of need, out of a place of not having lived up to what we know is right and good and true. And so you have to not only see Jesus as your example, you have to see him most of all as your substitute. The devil isn't just tempting Jesus here to destroy his good example. He's trying to persuade Jesus not to go to the cross. In verse 13 is a reference to the devil coming back at a more opportune time. When do you think that was? 
I think it was to tempt Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. At that point, as he was facing the final hours before he was to go to the cross, Jesus was under incredible stress to disobey. And he says, Father, I'd rather not do this. Take this cup from me. But he says, in the end, he says, thy will be done. It wasn't about his example. He came as our savior. He came to live the life we should have lived. And he came to die the death we should have died. He came to live the obedient life we should be living, all of us. And he came to die the death that we should die for our rebellion and disobedience. Jesus came most of all as our savior and as our substitute. And he does that in my place so that I can say, Father, don't accept me because of my record, because of my track record, but because of Jesus' record. Would you take my sins and put them on him and give me the reward he has won? When I see Jesus only as an example of resisting temptation, that becomes a burden. It actually discourages me. But when I see Jesus as having passed the ultimate test so that I can be accepted even when I fail, that is the hope of the gospel. That is what all of us need to fill our imagination. It's about what Jesus did. Why did he let any of that happen to him? Why did he die? For you and for me, quite simply. I hope you're captivated by the truth and the beauty of that. I hope that you see Jesus as the one who passed the test so that you can be accepted even though you have failed many times. That's how you resist the devil. He will come and he will accuse you. He wants to say, you know that good thing, that friendship, that family situation, your marriage, your job, that thing that means a lot to you? You are going to fail at it. You are no good. You are nothing. But we can answer the devil and we can say, that is not true. I'm something not because of my successes in this life, but I'm something because God created me and all of us in his image and because Jesus laid down his life for me. And so this good thing that I'm tempted by isn't going to become an ultimate thing. It's not going to take me away from God. And seeing Jesus as the one who passed that test so you can be accepted even though you have failed means that you can pass the test too by God's grace and with the Holy Spirit guiding you. Jesus covers all of our failures when we've been tempted. He offers forgiveness for our guilt and freedom from our sin and self-centeredness. He leads us from death into eternal life. He leads us right into his presence. Through Christ, and as we also are filled with the Holy Spirit, God says to each one of us, You are my son. You are my daughter. And with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you have 
opened the way for us, opened a new and living way for us to approach you. We thank you that you teach us that all of the desires in our life ultimately lead us to you. We thank you that you have made this world to be good. And you have promised to restore it to the goodness that you created it to be. Lord, we thank you for small mercies in our lives, for the beauty of the snow this morning, the chances we have to sit down with a friend, to pick up the phone and call someone, to reach out and encourage and to be encouraged. Lord, we thank you for Diane Boyd's ordination and induction this afternoon. We thank you for answered prayer that Margaret Cohen got a place where she can stay. Lord, we pray for our community in our needs too. We pray for those who are sick, that they would know your presence with them, that they would not feel like you've abandoned them. We pray for those who are mourning the loss of loved ones. And we think of Mary McLeod this morning and her family after the service yesterday. We pray for those who are dealing with a broken relationship in their life. Maybe who heard the words I spoke this morning about failure and and feel the weight of that, the heartbreak of that. Lord, would you invite them into finding who they truly are and the hope that you offer in Christ and in him alone? And Lord, we pray for reconciliation in all of those relationships. Would you turn our hard hearts into hearts that are soft and open us up to your spirit? Lord, we pray for our church and we think of the 40 youth and leaders that are away at Pioneer Camp today. We pray for them to have a great weekend. We pray for Rowena and her team. Give them safety as they come back this afternoon. We pray for the University of Guelph students who are also away retreating with InterVarsity. We pray that you would bless their time together also. And Lord, we, we thank you for the privilege we have of partnering with you in mission. And this week in our Courtright Mission Prayer Request, we, we lift up Mark Outerbridge as he speaks at a church in Vancouver today. And we pray for him as he shares about Liebenzell Mission. And we pray for that mission. Lord, we pray for peace in the world. And again, uh, this week, we continue to pray for the situation in China as the outbreak of this terrible virus spreads. We pray, Lord, that you would contain it because we know only you can. May your kingdom come. May your will be done here in Guelph and to the ends of the earth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.